This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Radio Parallax do realize that um, the main reason we're not quote unquote opening the country up is so that we can fight for our right to party, but that's kind of a subplot to all of this. I saw some photographs of the American River over the Memorial Day weekend, and boy, did it look crowded. And that is here in California, where we have by and large been a lot more conservative about our approach to interacting with others. It seems clear as we learn more about this virus that we're going to be able to find some strategies that will allow us to be a little more liberal in how we interact with others and still be safe. But boy, we need a lot more data to get all of that dialed in. But let's talk a little bit about those people who are just absolutely champing at the bit to open up the country. A certain large subset of that group is treating this like it's all a big joke, or even worse, some kind of democratic hoax. It's hard to believe, but just one week ago, Donald J. Trump's idiot son Eric told Fox News that Democrats had invented the pandemic to ruin the economy and his dad's rallies, and that after Election Day, the coronavirus will magically, all of a sudden, go away and disappear. Well, we're here to tell you that that is not what's going to happen. Mr. McMillan points out that Eric is actually the smart Trump son. Of course, that reminds us what our good friend Will Durst once said about Jeb Bush when Jeb was described as being the smart Bush progeny. Said Will, that's kind of like referring to Moe as the smart stooge. <laughs> yeah, a lot of stupidity out there. I'm looking at a meme right now. A yellow warning sign. It says, warning, bridge washed out. Below it, it says, unless you feel this is an attempt to deprive you of your liberty. Then keep driving. Got a cartoon from the Week magazine showing a bomber driving over a strip mall, dropping bombs onto it. One's a furniture store, one's a barbershop, one's a cafe. With the text, we have to destroy the village to save it. Well, nice attempt to recycle that line from the Vietnam War, but that's not very accurate. I'm also holding in my hand a picture of a rally that took place in Livermore of a bunch of people not wearing masks, all crowded together, waving American flags calling for Alameda County to reopen. That was about a week before the statistics show that in the Bay Area now, Alameda County is now number one, passing Santa Clara County in the number of cases. And there was a poll out about a week ago showing that a majority of Americans disapprove of protests against restrictions aimed at preventing the spread of coronavirus. That was a survey from the University of Chicago Divinity School and Associated Press, noting that 55% of Americans disapprove of the protests that have popped up in some states as some Americans begin to chafe at public health measures that, that have damaged the global economy. Rather disturbingly, I do note that 31% of the populace approves of the demonstrations, which rather remarkably Donald J. Trump has approved in his tweets despite the fact that the protests were in favor of policies counter to those of his administration. 
But here's something you might find very interesting, dear listener. Researchers have discovered that roughly half of the Twitter accounts pushing to, quote, reopen America, unquote, are bots. Writing about this in the Daily Coast, Mark Sumner noted that one key component of the 2016 campaign was a vast array of bot accounts managed by a team of Russian military hackers. That effort filled Twitter, Facebook, and other sites, and the process became some of the most influential accounts in social media. It now appears that it's happening again. A new study shows that when it comes to forcing workers to go back into offices, stores, and factories, almost half of the online voices shouting for the reopening of America were and are bot accounts. This report comes out of Carnegie Mellon University. They dug through over 200 million tweets discussing COVID-19 and discovered that out of the top 1,000 accounts, 62% are bots. Even more amazing, of the 50 most influential accounts on this topic, 82% are bots. They identified the bots by looking for accounts that tweeted more frequently than was, than was humanly possible, or those whose locations appeared to rapidly switch among different countries. And of course, in part of Mark Sumner making reference to Russia's efforts back in 2016, it is unclear at this point who's behind the surge in bot activity or whether they're originating from the U.S. or from a foreign country. Noted Sumner, the bots are numerous, but their message isn't varied. They're not being used to pass along accurate news about COVID-19, to encourage social distancing, or to support state governments calling for preventative measures. In addition to pushing false cures like Trump's much-pushed hydroxychloroquine and spreading general false information about the dangers of COVID-19, there's one point where bots are driving the whole social media. According to the report, they are dominating conversations about ending stay-at-home orders and, quote, reopening America, unquote. These same bots are pushing stories that deaths due to COVID-19 are being overcounted, that medical workers and hospitals are exaggerating the scale of the pandemic, that hospital rooms are filled with crisis actors or even mannequins to make the situation seem far worse than it is. The bots are both originating and repeating more than 100 different categories of false stories about COVID-19, the pandemic, and the steps needed to fight the disease. And they've also played a role in driving in-person protests in cities across the country. The first reopened protests were in Michigan, where they were funded and pushed through an online effort of the Michigan Freedom Fund. The MFF is funded by the family of Betsy DeVos. The tools and propaganda developed by the MFF for the first protests were used as a template for other protests in other states. These protests have also leveraged pro-gun groups that descend on the state capitals in the past, which is why the same protesters have appeared to threaten officials in multiple states. The coordinated effort behind reopening America may or may not be a Russian plot, but it is a plot, one that's been eagerly supported by a network of conservative organizations who definitely learned a lesson from 2016. What they learn is that America is hugely vulnerable to a coordinated propaganda campaign and that a small number of gun-waving protesters can be made to seem like a mass movement and they can get their way even if a majority of Americans disagree. It should be noted that this is all a far higher level of bot activity than usual, even when it comes to contentious events. The level of bot involvement in discussions about things like U.S. elections or natural disasters is typically 10 to 20%. And I have here a parallel item that was sent to me by, well, oddly enough, Edward McMillan. 
This is worth a minute or two of our time. Under the headline, U.S. doctors taking Trump's lead on hydroxychloroquine despite mixed results. Piece by Jessica Glenza, writing in Yahoo. Piece says there's an alternate universe of COVID-19 misinformation masquerading as science, which, with the encouragement of Donald Trump, is proliferating among his supporters. Among the most ardent proponents of these claims is the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, AAPS. It's a fringe group. It has less than 5,000 doctors in it. It was recently cited by Trump's campaign manager, Brad Parscale, to explain the president's stunning announcement that he was taking the drug hydroxychloroquine in an attempt to protect himself against COVID-19, despite a lack of evidence of its effectiveness. The piece notes correctly that all, since hydroxychloroquine was approved on an emergency basis by the FDA, studies have shown mixed results in the dangers of potentially life-threatening side effects for patients. Yet, Dr. Jane Orient, executive director of AAPS, told The Guardian she believed the drug should be prescribed more often, and in a statement based on a flawed database, claimed the drug offered about a 90% chance of helping COVID-19 patients. Quote, I've talked to a lot of doctors who are prescribing it in the U.S. They're not reporting any problems. Their patients have done very well. She did not say how many doctors she knew were prescribing it and declined to answer whether she herself was prescribing it, saying, quote, I don't want to have a target put on my back, which could result in somebody wanting to scrutinize my entire practice. You know, personally, I got a feeling that, that uh, scrutinizing her entire practice might not be a bad idea. Notes the piece. At first glance, the AAPS has the imprimatur of science. Its members rank among America's most trusted professionals. And yet, it has a track record unlike any other professional medical association. The group has questioned whether HIV causes AIDS. In case you're keeping score, it does. It's argued abortions cause breast cancer, which they do not. It's linked vaccines to autism, which has been repeatedly debunked on this program and elsewhere and just about everywhere. And I love this one. Even alleged that former President Barack Obama used hypnosis techniques to trick voters, especially Jewish people, into supporting him. I got to say, that is one that neither Mr. Millen or I had heard of till now. It should be noted that the AAPS's statements on hydroxychloroquine are not its only dubious views on the COVID-19 crisis. The CDC has recommended wearing masks in public places to prevent asymptomatic people spreading the disease. In other words, it is mostly a selfless act which protects others. But Dr. Orient has argued that masks are not free of side effects and that they, quote-unquote, retard oxygen to the brain. She later added, I think one jogger even dropped dead. Now, supposedly one man in China reportedly suffered collapsed lungs while wearing a mask, though a doctor in the report on him said that there was no clear evidence the mask caused the injury. Probably wearing shoes, too. <laughs> Mr. Millen voices the possibility he was also wearing shoes at the time of the incident, and perhaps the shoes also did not cause the injury. The piece notes that while prolonged use of some masks, like N95 respirators, might cause lightheadedness and discomfort, loose-fitting cloth or surgical masks most commonly used by the public are highly unlikely to cause such reverse side effects. Orient also voiced her support for lifting stay-at-home orders, saying, quote, they're destroying the economy, they're destroying people's lives, there is really no evidence they work. But, of course, there's widespread evidence that stay-at-home orders, in fact, do work and could have saved thousands of more lives had they imp been imposed earlier. For example, a recent Italian study found that the stay-at-home order there prevented about 
200,000 hospitalizations. And data from Columbia University found if lockdowns had been imposed in the U.S. just two weeks earlier, on March 1st, as many as 54,000 lives might have been saved. This AAPS was formed in the U.S. in 1943 in opposition to a proposal to provide Americans the sort of universal government-run health care established just a few years later in the U.K. The National Health Service in the U.K. would become one of the country's proudest achievements. I'm tickled to note that Trump's first Health and Human Services Secretary, Tom Price, was a member of AAPS. In a 2011 video unearthed by the Washington Post, Tom Price called Dr. Orient a kindred spirit. He said, It's always wonderful to be in the same room with Jane Orient. Jane has been a hero of mine. Price will later resign after spending $1 million in taxpayer funds on private jets. Now, over the Memorial Day weekend, or I think actually technically on Tuesday right after the Memorial Day weekend, America's official official tally of deaths due to COVID-19 exceeded 100,000. A week before, and perhaps I did it on this program, I, I guesstimated that we would reach that total, that sad number, on Monday of the Memorial Day weekend. And right up to that Monday, it looked as though that would be the day. Numbers were going up something like 1,200 a day for something like five days until it hit 99.3 thousand. And then it mysteriously slowed down. When it got up to 99.805 at about 5 o'clock on Monday, what do you know? It turned out that it took 14 hours after that to add 70 more names. Now, the truth is, we undoubtedly hit 100,000 weeks ago. Writing in the New York Times, Nicholas Kristof, after consulting a statistician, concluded that at least 20 to 25,000 cases had not been logged in because a test had not been done. The number stood at 83,000 at that point, so by May 13th, we were at 100,000. Despite not having test results, they were able to come up with this number by taking a look at excess deaths, meaning mortality greater than average for a particular time period. For example, for the seven weeks ending April 25th in the U.S., about 70,000 more Americans died than is normal for those weeks. We should also note with people not driving, the motor vehicle accident total was surely down versus last year. I would also note that this kind of analysis doesn't determine if they died directly from the virus or indirectly because surely some people perished from heart attacks or strokes because they feared going to hospitals and they may have delayed calling 911 or not gotten in because ambulance services were stretched thin. In other words, a modest number presumably died because of COVID-19 without having been infected by it. Yeah, I must say, as I was watching those numbers slow down over the Memorial Day weekend, I was reminded of Zeno's paradox. You probably remember that thought problem from high school attributed to the ancient Greek philosophers where Achilles was racing a tortoise. It was pointed out that although Achilles is much faster than the tortoise, by the time he reaches the tortoise, the tortoise has moved forward. Then when Achilles closes the gap between what the tortoise just gained, well and the tortoise has still moved forward. The implication being that Achilles can never pass the tortoise, which is, of course, is true only if your frame of reference keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Anyway, we've said it before, and we're going to say it again right now. Expect, in the weeks and months to come, quite a bit of monkey business with the numbers of cases and the numbers of deaths. We'll have a little bit more to say about that in the second half of today's show. Why would they fudge numbers, you ask? Well, Donald Trump and the Republican Party insists that 
The economy was doing great until this COVID virus uh, conspiracy hoax democratic blah, blah, blah showed up on the scene. And once proper actions are taken, the economy will be booming again. Now, an awful lot of people, whether the economy is booming or not, are going to take a look at the death toll and say, well, that might not have been worth it. But if the numbers are kept low, well, they might not have that reaction. We put it on this program, on this very program, and I think everyone we've done in coronavirus, that one of the keys to this whole pandemic and how to deal with it is that we need to have accurate numbers. We need to have testing to find out who has it, who doesn't have it, what the death rates are, how long it takes to develop a protective antibody, assuming that we do, etc., etc. And the key to this is having good information based on testing. You may have noticed that the United States has not embarked upon a crash effort to get people tested. And if you think about it, and you certainly should, that seems to be a rather glaring omission in all of what we're doing. Sounding off on this in the Washington Post was Fintan O'Toole. And believe you me, we need to quote a little bit from Mr. O'Toole, who himself noted that coronavirus testing can contain the virus, save many lives, and help reopen the economy. But President Trump revealed last week why he refuses to lead a massive national testing program like the ones that have succeeded in driving down the number of cases and deaths in other countries. Said Trump, by doing all of this testing, we make ourselves look bad. Mr. O'Toole notes the U.S. has still done far less testing per capita than 25 other countries. But Trump doesn't like what testing has revealed. A country with 5% of the global population having one-third of the world's known cases. He thinks testing produces a score, like the stock market, or like TV ratings. Rational people, rational people, Mr. O'Toole points out, know that the goal of testing is to produce an objective truth, a truth about the prevalence of the virus in a given city or state so that wise policy decisions can be made. But he opines Trump doesn't believe in objective truth. He believes in perceptions, 100,000 American dead notwithstanding. And here's the other barn burner of a Trump quote. And Mr. Millen, this one needs to go on our all-time list, frankly. Said Donald J. Trump, if we didn't do any testing, we would have very few cases. This reminds me of the time when I was about five years old. My sister, who was age two at the time, decided to test out, as I think all two-year-olds do, a technique of making things go away that you don't want to have in your environment. She covered her eyes with her hands. I remember laughing and thinking at age five that when I was about that age, I would tried that as well and discovered it, it didn't work. So although it's true, I think that probably the average two-year-old learns that that technique is not effective, it nevertheless appears to be news to the President of the United States. Now, we've been beating up on the president pretty bad on this program ever since this virus hit the news. And, of course, he fully deserves every bit of it. But much to my surprise, there is there is a bit of blame to go around, particularly in the state of New York. And I'm going to defer that to our second segment today. What we should be doing in this country is let health care professionals determine and direct policy and communicate with the public about what they're doing and why. But instead, we have politicians succumbing to that disease they all seem to suffer from. And so although they shouldn't, they can't resist seizing the spotlight and trying to direct things. Can't resist quoting CNN.com at this point, although we have more to say about that in our second half, which noted that 
President Barack Obama's White House left the Trump administration with an intricate 69-page playbook for fighting pandemics. The plan included a recommendation that the federal government take the lead in coordinating the response and rely on a single spokesperson to provide consistent messaging to the public with decision charts about when to shore up strategic stockpiles of personal protective equipment. And yes, that single spokesperson was not to be a politician. And how about this horrible little factoid from the Miami Herald? More than 100,000 crew members are stuck on their cruise ships without pay because of border and port closures. At least 575 cruise ship crew members have contracted COVID-19 and seven have died. You, You just have to wonder how this can be that these cruise ship companies, which go to places like Malaysia, where the labor costs are pretty reasonable, staff their ships with these individuals, and then when this crisis hits, decide they're not going to pay them. To that, we say, heads should roll. Now, one of the few things that I think is very predictable in these unpredictable times is the behavior of the President of the United States. It should be possible to figure out exactly what he's going to do before he does it because, well, he's so predictable. And he's repeated these behaviors for decades. I have noticed on social media that more and more health care professionals are openly questioning whether Donald Trump might have dementia. As a healthcare professional, I have to admit that is an intriguing suggestion. One that I think I'm going to run by Mr. McMillan's better half, who knows quite a bit about dementia. Not from studying me, though. Well, I'll see if I can verify that from her. Personally, I think it's still rather more likely that uh, all of this horrible behavior we, we see from him stems from his sociopathic tendencies. Because who but a sociopath would do the thing we'll discuss momentarily? Let's talk about Trump's feud with Joe Scarborough. I do not watch the show that Mr. Scarborough hosts with his wife, Morning Joe. It airs on MSNBC, 6 to 9 a.m. on weekdays, I gather. But uh, those hosts have been hammering the administration's dysfunction in the face of COVID-19, which, you know, God bless them, they should. Scarborough has often taken Trump to task for his, quote, blizzard of lies, unquote. Apparently, it really got under Trump's skin after they zeroed in on his contentious exchange with a CBS reporter at a news conference. Scarborough and his wife both called Trump's remarks racist. They ran a segment critical of the Justice Department's unusual move to drop the criminal case against Michael Flynn, former national security advisor who pled guilty to lying to the FBI. I, just, I have to pause there momentarily to do a slight detour and note the Epic Times, which is fanatically pro-Trump and anti-China, had a headline, I don't have it in front of me, but it was a headline touting the fact that this case against Flynn was pretty thin. If you extracted his guilty plea, there was hardly any evidence at all. But anyway, Scarborough took Trump to task, as, you know, we expect the media to do. Donald Trump, who regards any media that's critical of him in any way, shape, or form as an enemy of the people, responded with what I have to say, seems like a new low, even for him. Trump then tweeted hints that Joe Scarborough may have murdered one of his congressional aides. Here's a quote from one of these illustrious tweets. 
When will they open a cold case on psycho Joe Scarborough? Did he get away with murder? Some people think so. Why did he leave Congress so quietly and quickly? Isn't it obvious what's happening now? A total nut job. Noted Salvador Rizzo, writing for the Fact Checker email associated with the Washington Post. It's an old claim debunked by the Post back in 2017. Trump often smears those who challenge him. But it remains astounding to see the president make a thinly veiled murder accusation devoid of evidence. Many of the 18,000 false and misleading claims in our Trump database feature overheated rhetoric, but few rise to these vicious heights. Trump first lobbed this conspiratorial charge at Scarborough in 2017. The president is referring to the 2001 death of Lori Klausutis, a 28-year-old aide who worked for Scarborough when he was a Republican member of Congress representing Florida's 1st District. The circumstances of Klausutis' death have spawned conspiracy theories, but authorities never suspected foul play. Her death is not an unsolved mystery or a cold case waiting for answers. Her death on July 20th, 2001 was ruled accidental, and the police concluded there was no reason to investigate further. Police investigator told the Post in 2017 the authorities had left no stone unturned. PolitiFact has given Trump's claim its worst rating, pants on fire. The medical examiner concluded that she had passed out as a result of an irregular heartbeat, struck her head, and died from an acute subdural hematoma. The medical examiner noted that the injury was the result of a trauma from a fall as she lost consciousness from a probable cardiac arrhythmia secondary to valvular heart disease. The day before she was found dead, Klausitis told a colleague she was not feeling well. She also told a mail carrier she was not feeling well. Trump, in his tweet, asked why Scarborough had left Congress so quickly and quietly, implying a connection between Klausudis' death and Scarborough's resignation. In fact, the death occurred almost two months after Scarborough announced his resignation. Klausudis was looking for a new job when she died. Scarborough was in Washington. In a previous tweet from April 30th, Trump said, When you have psycho Joe, whatever happened to your girlfriend Scarborough, another of the low IQ individuals. It should be noted that no one has alleged and no evidence shows that Scarborough was romantically involved with Klaus Sudis, who was married. The White House did not respond to a request for comment from the Post. Now, in the wake of Trump making unsubstantiated claims on his Twitter account about mail-in voting, Twitter for the first time added fact-check labels on the tweets. It attached blue exclamation mark alerts to the tweets to warn that his claims were false and had been debunked by fact checkers. As a result, Trump is threatening to regulate or shut down social media companies for supposedly stifling conservative voices. Oh, by the way, after Trump made those accusations against Scarborough, the widower of Lori Klausudis denounced the presidential statements. Twitter issued an apology to him, but did not take down the tweets. It is not immediately clear, noted the Washington Post, whether Donald Trump has the authority to shut down Twitter and other social media companies. Mr. Maryland suggests that Twitter call his bluff. He does have 80 million followers who, uh, I guess, hang on his every word. Curiously, he himself follows 46. I hope that someone can explain to the man that he does not get to rule by decree, a concept he appears to be a little vague on. All right, we've got to end this thing on a little bit lighter note, but we still want to bag on politicians. So here's a quick little story for you. Henry IV, the 16th century king of France, was reportedly listening to a pompous dignitary make a dull speech. 
when, reportedly, a donkey started to bray, at which point the king, to his everlasting credit, turned to the donkey and said, Gentlemen, one at a time, please. This is Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more in our second half. Stick around.